Well, let's all turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're coming close to the end of 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> and um, we're going to be continuing to read what I introduced last week. It's become known as the fool's speech. And um, as we saw last week, Paul has had to resort to boasting in order to undermine the boasts, the boastful claims of these false apostles who are really good at marketing themselves and selling themselves as superior servants of Christ, but are in truth leading people away from Christ and are actually servants of the devil. So Paul resorts to boasting in order to win back the hearts of the Corinthians, but as he boasts, to our surprise, he boasts not in his strengths, but in his weaknesses. He turns boasting on its head. The false apostles boast of their strengths. Paul boasts of his weaknesses. They boast of how great and strong and respected and admired they are. And Paul comes along and he boasts about how much suffering he has done, how much humiliation he has endured for the name of Christ. He boasts about his shame. He boasts in his weakness. The word for boast means to glory in. And just like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, there's good boasting and there's bad boasting. We might think that all boasting is bad. It's not. Bad boasting is when we glory in ourselves. When we want to glory and glorify ourselves. Good boasting is when we glory in the Lord. When we, we find our boast in God. And so, in chapter 11, Paul glories in his weakness, but in chapter 12, he seems to make a, a, a shift and he begins to boast about some very unique experiences and revelations. And so let's read verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on this time in His Word. Let's read it together. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The title of today's message is The Beautiful Strength of Weakness. Let's pray together. Lord, You have truly turned the values and the things this world holds up as great and powerful and worthwhile and meaningful. You've turned all that on its head. You really have, Lord. The wise, the rich, the powerful are fools and poor and weak. And Lord, You have chosen the things that are not, the things that are foolish, the things that are weak, the things that are not, to confound the wisdom of this world. You have set the very center of history around a symbol of weakness. And You have declared it the power of God for salvation, and that is the cross. And we thank You We thank You that our Savior emptied Himself for our sake. That we might receive His riches, His wisdom, His strength. Lord, we come to You thirsty and hungry, and we pray You fill us with the power of Christ this morning. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here's what's going on in this chapter. Paul talks about a man he knows who 14 years earlier was caught up to the third heaven. Scholars agree, most scholars agree, that the person he's speaking of here is himself. He's referring to himself. He was the one who was caught up to the third heaven, but he's referring to himself in the third person in order to distance himself from this boast, to put a little bit of literary distance between himself and this boast. And what he says is 14 years ago, he was caught up to the third heaven. Now in the Hebrew thought, there were three heavens. The first heaven is what we know as the atmosphere, where the clouds and the birds and all of that goes on, our atmosphere. The second heaven is what we would consider space or the universe, where the stars and the moon and the sun shine. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the place where God resides. It's the realm of God. That's, that's the heaven that Paul was caught up to. Now, he doesn't know. He says, I don't know if I was caught up physically or out of body. It was so real, he, has, he does not know. He says, God knows. But it was so tangibly real, so immersive, it felt physical to Paul. And there, he says, he saw things that cannot be told 
Uh, the NIV translated inexpressible things. Things that cannot be described. Things that go out beyond our words, where words don't exist to, to paint the picture. In 1 Corinthians, he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered man's mind the things that God has prepared for those who know and love Him. It's beyond our imagination. It's beyond our words to describe what Paul saw. Have you ever wondered, what is heaven like? What is heaven like? Paul saw. What, what is it like to have the brilliance of God's glory radiate unblocked everywhere, through everything? Paul saw it. Paul saw what angels look like in their home, their habitat. He saw what glorified people look like in heaven. He saw whether there are animals. You ever ask, you know, people ask, are there animals in heaven? Paul saw. Is there grass? Are there trees? I'm sure there are buildings. What, what's it like? We know this earth. That's all we know. And, and it's awesomely beautiful. But it's nothing like heaven. Paul saw what heaven is like. But he wasn't allowed to speak of it. I mean, in a sense, God had him sign a, a non-disclosure. He was not allowed to write or to speak about what he saw. He saw things. He came back, and he could not speak of it. Now, I know over the years, there have been people who have claimed to have died and gone to heaven, and some of them have, have written books about their experience. Now, listen, whether, whether they did or they didn't, whether that was real or not real, is, it's, I'm not going to get into all that now, but I will say this. Because Paul, the apostle, was brought into heaven and then said, you will not write what you see, I am skeptical that God would allow others to go to heaven and write of what they see. I'm skeptical about the claims. Now listen, if the false apostles had one hundredth of this experience, they would be plastering it on TV. They would be shouting it from the rooftops. They would be boasting in all the glory of their experience in heaven. It would have been trumpeted as evidence that we are the best apostles going. We've been to heaven. Have you? They'd be doing speaking circuits and they, you know, the man who went to heaven and all that it would be. But Paul, for 14 years, he says nothing about it. Can you imagine? If, can you imagine if you had been to heaven and you said nothing about it? You never used it to open doors? You never used it to get bigger crowds? You never used it to enhance your reputation? You never spoke of it for 14 years. And the only reason he brings it up now is to boast in order to undermine their boast. And it's because of the sake of the Gospel. This isn't a, a pride thing. This is they are destroying the Gospel. And therefore, Paul says, you've got to believe they are wrong, 
and the gospel I gave you is right. But Paul is a reluctant boaster. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. He's going to transition now in his boast. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think of me more, may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. The NIV translates this so that no one may think more of me than is warranted by what I say and do. Paul did not want people to think more of him than he is warranted. Now let's just, let's just pause there for a moment. Because if we're honest, most of us don't have a big problem with people thinking more of us than is warranted. Our problem is when people think less of us than is warranted. Pride boasts to make us look more. And, and listen, there's all levels of pride, but we all have pride. Raise your hand if you have no pride in you. That's a trap. That was a trap, folks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, for those on uh, watching online, we did have one young, young hand raised. <laughs> listen, even if, listen, not that everybody goes around boasting and bragging, but listen, don't we want to put our best foot forward? Why do we want to put our best foot forward? Why do we want to hide the fact that we had an argument with our spouse just before coming to church and we put the smile on? Why do we do all these things? Well, you know, in part because the world doesn't need to see every little thing we do, but in part because even the humblest among us want to put our best foot forward. We don't go out of our way to be thought less of, but we are not quite as upset when people might attribute some things to us that are not completely they think more of us than maybe is warranted. C.S. Lewis said, true humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You hear that? It's, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. Oh, I'm a horrible, oh, I'm a worm, oh, I'm all these terrible things. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's, it's just our mind getting disengaged from constantly thinking about us, me, my I, mine, what, what, what are people thinking about me? What is my reputation? What are, you know, this and that? Oh, people are applauding. Oh, that's great. People are criticizing. That's terrible. It's, it's thinking less about ourselves. Humility is the desire to be known for who we are, nothing more and nothing less. It's not putting yourself down. And it's not puffing yourself up. Here's who I am. This is it. This is who I am. The more in love with God's glory we are, the less we're in love with our own glory. So there's freedom because we're freed from the, the shackles and the tyranny of being obsessed with ourselves. 
and what people think of us, what people are saying, what, what's going on, and, and am I big in people's eyes? Am I small in people's eyes? It's freedom from that, because those are shackles. Those are chains. And the more we're bound by that, the more we are chained to a little life. But when we begin to love God's glory more and we begin to boast in His glory, we don't lose confidence. We don't walk around, hey, I'm a welcome mat. Step on me, please. We begin to walk in a confidence and in a reality of life and in a reality of who we are that is freeing. Paul says, I don't want people to think more of me than is warranted. Paul wants people to see him as he is. Nothing more, nothing less. But I mentioned at the beginning that Paul seems to shift his boasting from the weaknesses, I was shipwrecked, I was beaten, I was left for dead, I was all these things, and seems to shift it to strength. I, and, and we do believe he was speaking of himself, was caught up to the third heaven, but he does do that. He does boast of his spiritual superiority, but he then uses that to introduce yet another weakness in him. Look at with me at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. A thorn was given me in the flesh. People have tried to figure out what this thorn is. People have speculated on what this thorn is. Maybe you've heard some speculations about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Many people speculate that it was some kind of physical ailment or deficiency. He was physically hurting in some way. Maybe he had a deformity. Maybe he suffered from epilepsy. Maybe a chronic disease. Some say maybe he had migraines. Many believe that maybe he had poor eyesight. But whatever it was, it was a physical thorn in the flesh, weakness in his flesh that he lived with. Others believe that it was some kind of... Uh, persistent, ongoing opposition and persecution. It was somebody or some group of people, and we know he had this, that followed him from place to place, basically persecuting him and hobbling him from and harassing him as he attempted to carry out his ministry. So, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, since Paul doesn't identify it, there's no way for us to know. There's absolutely no way for us to know. And, apparently, we don't need to know. Because God did not include it in His Word. So we don't need to know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. What we do know, we know three things about the thorn in the flesh. Number one, it was given to him for a purpose. To keep him from getting proud about the revelations God had given to him. We know a second thing. It was given to him by God. That is implied in that it was given to him and it was given for a good purpose, to keep him from getting proud. And we know it was given to him to keep him from getting proud. It was given to him by God for a good purpose. We know third thing. It was 
a messenger of Satan. Whatever this thorn in the flesh was, Paul identified it as a messenger of Satan. And yet, and yet, he then repeats the good and godly purpose that it was given to him for in order to keep him from getting conceited. So, Satan was trying to do one work in him, but God had a bigger purpose, and we see that many times in Scripture, for this thorn in the flesh. So Paul asked three times for God to remove it, and three times God said no. And God finally says to him, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God wanted Paul to experience weakness in the flesh so that he could rely on God's strength through him. God wanted him to experience being hobbled so that he could be built up and empowered by God's grace. The world does not need to see our strength. The world needs to see God's strength. God's power, Paul says, is perfected in what? Weakness. God's power is perfected in weakness. The world does not need to see what we can do. The world needs to see what God can do. The world does not need to hear us boast, look at me. The world needs to hear us say, look at Christ. The channel for God's power runs through our weakness. So do you feel weak? Is there an area that you feel weakness in? There is a beautiful strength in weakness when it leads us to rely on God and Christ's power instead of relying on our own. I want to close by asking this question of us. What's in your weakness? What's in your weakness? Thorn in the flesh. Now listen, let me acknowledge this. None of us here are apostles, right? None of us have been caught up to the third heaven, right? So, we probably don't need... We're probably not sitting with such authority and such revelation as Paul that we need to be humbled to the same degree. But listen, we all have thorns in the flesh. We all have weaknesses. God didn't mass produce Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul had a specific thorn in the flesh. Peter didn't have the same thorn in the flesh as far as we know. Peter had other areas of weakness through which the power of Christ could be perfected. 
Each of us have weaknesses that are particular to us. We probably have strengths that are particular to us as well, but each of us have weaknesses. You have weaknesses. I don't care how together you have it, you have weaknesses. And I'm not talking primarily about sinful weaknesses. Like, I keep sinning in this area. I keep... That we certainly need Christ's power to overcome that. We certainly need His grace to overcome that. But I'm talking about weaknesses such as this thorn of flesh. This was not sin. This was a frailty. This was something that hobbled him, that hindered him. It was some kind of weakness, some inability, some frailty, some physical or emotional affliction, some kind of persecution or oppression or trial that would not quit. And we all have those. There's something that is that to you. The great Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers and evangelists of all time, suffered debilitating constant depression. I mean, it came and it went, but it was so commonly hitting his heart that he writes about it quite a bit. This great preacher of the grace of God, of the joy in Christ, of the the life of Christ, of the closeness of relationship with the Lord, of of the joy in Christ, this great preacher suffered depression and it didn't just lift every time he prayed. It, It clamped down on his mind, clamped down on his heart, clamped down on his emotions to where he says, I feel like I'm fighting with fog. I can't get purchase against it. I'm sure he asked God to take it away. And there's no question God could have taken it away in a moment. But He didn't. Spurgeon suffered with that all the days of his life. A weakness. But through that weakness, the grace and power and strength of Christ could be seen. What is in your weakness? It's okay to ask God to remove it. It's okay. It could be a physical ailment. It could be an emotional area. It could be a person you work with or a person in your life that, Lord, life would be a lot easier. I could, I could run faster and serve you better if, this person's making my life miserable wasn't there. It's okay to ask God to remove that situation, to heal you of that illness or that affliction. It's okay to say, God, would you move that person at work who seems obsessed with making my life miserable? Could you move him, transfer him or her to another country? It's okay. It's okay. Paul prayed three times for God to remove the thorn in the flesh. He didn't say, well, if I have it, it must be God's will. It's okay. 
We can, we should pray for God to remove it. Paul prayed three times. He didn't ask once and stop. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And if God takes away that thorn in your flesh, praise God. But if God re- causes that thorn in the flesh to remain in your life, don't waste your weakness. Look for what God wants to do in and through it in you. Because you remember what God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Sometimes God says no. Let that weakness. I, w- I want to talk, and I don't care. Again, it could be different things. We all have them. We all have them. But let that weakness, for however long God has it in your life, press you to Christ. That's what it did for Paul. It pressed him to Christ. It pressed him. He drew to Christ. Let it move your reliance from self to God. God, I can't do this. If you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it through me because I don't have the power or strength to do it. God loves that kind of prayer. That, by the way, is what the world needs to see. Not what we can do, but what God can do through us. There is a beautiful strength in weakness when it causes us to fall upon the grace and the strength of Christ. The false apostles boasted in their strength and their giftedness and their greatness. And they had no good spiritual impact on the world at all. Paul gloried in his weakness. Verse 9, Therefore, therefore, because of God's answer to him, my strength is perfected in weakness. He says, well then, if that's the case, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That was what he gloried in, and God used Paul to impact the entire world and all of history. I want to just close by emphasizing the goal here isn't weakness. The goal here isn't weakness. It's the power of Christ. The goal and the point isn't weakness. It's the strength of God. The beautiful strength of God, Christ, displayed through our weakness. As we close this morning, I I want to just allow the Lord to minister our hearts I want you to ask this question of your heart what's in my weakness what's in my weakness where do I find the weakness I struggle with is there a particular weakness that has been coming to your mind as, as throughout this morning I want to encourage you to invite the Lord there Invite the Lord there. Make that place an altar 
Maybe you focused so much on take it out of my life, change this, give me whatever, heal me, take this person away, whatever. Those are not wrong prayers. But for right now, I'm inviting you to invite him into that place and make it an altar to God. Make it an altar before the Lord. And understand, it could be there that Christ wants to display his greatest strength and power in your life. A broken bone is strongest where it's healed. Where it was broken, it heals stronger. Our weakness, Christ through that, can become our greatest strength. Yet not I, but Christ who strengthens me. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. As we go before the Lord, I was leaving here the other night and I felt the Lord drop a couple words into my heart. And I'm just going to share them. They might be for someone here. The first word was rejection. Rejection. When you think what's in my weakness, it's rejection. Maybe it was someone close to you, a parent, a spouse, a friend, that you felt rejected by, and it's become a hobble. It's hobbled you in other relationships. You feel wounded deeply, deeply. You don't want anybody to know that. You don't want anybody to be brought into that. But you know it's deep inside your soul, this sense, and now you carry that so that it's very easy for you to feel that others are rejecting you. What's in your weakness? You would say rejection. And I believe the Lord wants to say to you, press into that. Press into that, but with this truth. God's acceptance is sufficient for you. God's acceptance is sufficient for you. You are accepted in the beloved. Allow his unconditional acceptance in Christ to fill you at that point and to bring healing to your soul. God accepts you in Christ. And that acceptance is sufficient. Let it be sufficient. Let that be the place where God radiates His strength through you in what used to be your place of weakness. 
The second word I have, and obviously there's so many weaknesses, so this is not going to apply to everybody, but it might apply to some, is the second word is insecurity. I know we all have insecurities, but I'm talking about something deeper. I'm talking about a deeper sense of I don't measure up. I do not measure up. That's a thorn to you. You, you live with this fear that you're going to be found out. That you're a fraud, you're an imposter, you're just going through the motions. Because you feel insecure about who you are. You feel like there's the words not enough written across your heart. Let Christ be your security. Let Him be your security. It brought back a memory of mine when I was in high school going through a very insecure time. And we went on a church retreat and there was this young woman named Darlene who came with us. She played guitar, had a beautiful voice, and she shared a song. And the song was called Be My Security. And I remember the opening line. It was, Be my security, my strength in adversity. And when all the world seems to let me down, be more than the world to me. And I had her sing that song over and over again because God was ministering to my heart. That's where I was at. Be my security. As we pray, maybe there's some other weakness, some other thorn that you have coming to your heart or mind. I just want to encourage us. Let's lay it at the altar as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come into the throne of grace right now. We come into the throne of grace confidently in Jesus Christ, our beautiful Savior. Lord, we come in our time of weakness and we come for your strength. I pray that as we lay our weaknesses at the altar, that our prayer will shift, that our emphasis will shift, that what we want isn't necessarily, not primarily freedom from the weakness. What we want more than anything is that the power of Christ might rest on us. That the world might see God's grace living and active in us, Lord. Pray that, Father, you will speak and draw near and that you will minister to that person in that place of weakness. And you will begin to strengthen. You will begin to empower them from the inside out. And they might and others might the power of Christ resting upon them. Hebrews 4.16 encourages us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need in the place 
the timely place of our need. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You've chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong things of the world. The point isn't weakness. The point is you. Help us to live in the grace and power of Jesus Christ, we pray. We leave here. We leave here believing that the, the power of Christ rests upon us, particularly in that area of weakness. And we will be careful to give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.